0: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, we're sharing a constitutional conversation from our archives in honor of Women's History Month. This 2015 program traces the history of the Equal Rights Amendment and explores the question of whether we need the ERA to ensure gender equality in the US. Jeffrey Rosen was joined by law professor Carrie Franklin and law and history professor Serena Mayeri. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started.
1: So. Lots to talk about. Um, Carrie, let's start with the ERA. It was uh, passed um, by Congress in 1972, but there were earlier versions of it embraced as early as 1923. Can you give us a sense of what the 1923 version was and then take us up to the to, to the current version?
2: Um, right, so the ERA was first proposed in 1923 Uh, after the 19th Amendment passed. The 19th Amendment passed in 1920, and it gave women the right to vote. And then feminists who had been advocating the right to vote decided that we should go one step further. We've amended the Constitution to give women the right to vote. We should amend the Constitution to give them equal rights across uh, all areas of the law. So it was proposed in 1923. It was proposed in every Congress for the next 50 years. Uh, It never passed, obviously. Interestingly, for most of the 20th century, feminists were very divided on the ERA. Not all uh, participants in the women's movement supported the ERA. In fact, many, many feminists were against the ERA because what the ERA said was, um, "No no state, no federal government shall deprive people of equality under law on the basis of sex. And this large strand of the women's movement was afraid that courts would implement this amendment uh, in such a way that all of the legislation that had been passed over many decades to protect women would be eradicated. Right? So there were labor laws saying uh, employers can't force women to work more than 12 hours at a factory, or can't make them stand up for this amount of time, or can't um, make them work more than six days a week. Um, This kind of protective legislation historically was seen as beneficial to women uh, to not let employers run them into the ground, and feminists were very concerned that an equal rights amendment would say, nope, men and women need to be treated exactly equally, and all of that helpful legislation would uh, be out the window. So it wasn't really until the late 60s that the women's movement coalesced around um, the ERA, and at that point, the protective legislation had started to be... Um, struck down anyway, because Congress passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which um, prohibited discrimination in employment. So protective legislation was on the way out. Once that was on the way out, the women's movement could coalesce around this idea of the Equal Rights Amendment, got through Congress on the coattails of all of that enthusiasm, um, but then petered out
1: Great, not great for the, area, <laughs> great as a discussion, as a summary of, of the history. Um, Serena, what can you add to that history? C- Carrie reminds us, at the turn of the century, progressives uh, like Louis Brandeis, my hero, were defending pro- uh, protective legislation for women, um, maximum hour laws that the Supreme Court upheld for women, even though it struck them down for men. So tell us more about the division among feminists in the first wave, uh, or, or starting in the 19th century through the 1920s about whether or not protective laws were a good thing and how they began to coalesce around the ERA by the second wave of the 70s.
0: Sure. Um, well, uh, one thing that I think surprises a lot of people today is the odd coalitions who were in favor of the ER, the first ERA, the one that was proposed in the 1920s, um, prior to the uh, unification of feminists around the ERA that Carrie just just described, um, f- uh, feminists in organizations like the National Women's Party, which were very focused on winning an equal rights amendment um, and opposed to the argument that protective labor legislation for women needed to be saved, often allied themselves uh, with racial segregationists in Congress um, in order to uh, build upon those uh, legislators' belief that protective labor legislation generally was bad, um, and, uh, and their effort to curry favor with, of course, white women um, and oppose civil rights legislation um, for this pretty small group of, of feminists uh, were willing to, to ally themselves with anyone who would support the ERA. Uh, that all changed, uh, as Carrie mentioned, um, starting, I think, in the early 1960s with uh, a a strategy proposed by an African-American civil rights lawyer named Polly Murray, who thought that one way of getting around um, both of these problems, both the split between the civil rights movement and feminists, um, and the split among feminists about whether an ERA was desirable or not, she thought that one solution to this problem would be to advocate um, for a new interpretation of the 14th Amendment and a litigation strategy that would interpret the Equal Protection Clause to include um, sex discrimination and women's rights. And uh, over the course of the 1960s, as Carrie mentioned, when, after Title VII was passed in 1964, um, Title VII in, in some sense solved both of the problems that were dividing feminists. Uh, it, uh, it enabled feminists to ally um, with a civil rights movement to uh, push for the enforcement of Title VII for both race and sex discrimination And at the same time, as Carrie mentioned, it um, obliterated sex-specific protective labor legislation, removing the other obstacle to feminist unification around the ERA. So really beginning in the late 60s and early 70s, um, feminists were pursuing, at the same time, um, the enforcement of existing legislation like Title VII, Um, which, of course, uh, attacked employment discrimination, and we're also pursuing um, a constitutional strategy involving both advocacy for an equal rights amendment and also litigation under the 14th Amendment to accomplish some of the same goals.
1: Um, That is also very helpful in reminding us of this unsettling history where feminists made common cause with opponents of uh, civil rights for African Americans and how that changed moving forward. Let's focus on the debates about the ERA. I think the audience will want to know do we need uh, an ERA today? And why did uh, supporters of an ERA think it was needed when it passed? i love during these panels to bring out our NCC pocket constitution with its thrilling new introduction by uh, yours truly and David Rubenstein about the relationship between the Constitution, the Declaration, and the Bill of Rights. And uh, the 14th Amendment, which Serena mentioned, does guarantee to all persons the equal protection of the laws, but section two of the amendment seems to contemplate that if states deny the vote to African American males, then their apportionment in Congress will be proportionally reduced. Feminists objected to that by uh, acknowledgement that the 14th Amendment wasn't intended to protect women for injecting uh, a note of caste into the Constitution. Was that relevant in the debates over the ERA? What did its proponents think it would achieve, and why did they think it was necessary?
2: Right, so the 14th Amendment was passed in the aftermath of the Civil War, and it said no state shall deprive any person of equal protection under the law. Uh, Suffragettes uh, in the 19th century were allied with abolitionists, and they hoped that after the Civil War, Congress would pass an amendment, and America would amend the Constitution to protect against both race and sex discrimination. Well, as it happened, when uh, push came to shove, the uh, suffrage supporters got thrown under the bus because it couldn't get uh, passed, and so the uh, 14th Amendment ends up introducing the word male into the Constitution for the first time. So it's very clear that the Equal Protection Clause is not intended by the framers uh, in 1868 to apply to women, to protect women, because the second section says um, you're only going to be punished if you're a state and you deprive men of the vote. Uh, implicitly saying, if you deprive women of the vote, that's okay. So discrimination against women seems to be contemplated by the people who enacted the 14th Amendment. So fast forward to the 1970s, women are looking at the 14th Amendment. This is the Equal Protection Clause, right? This is the grand provision of the Constitution that protects people against discrimination by the state. And they're seeing that it doesn't protect on the basis of sex. It only protects on the basis of race. And so they say, we need an amendment to the Constitution that will protect on the basis of sex, that will make it clear that that is also a ground on which the state may not discriminate. And so they write the Equal Rights Amendment, which says um, equality of law is guaranteed, um, no discrimination on account of sex. Uh, That's the early 1970s. Interestingly, over the course of the 1970s, in part because of pro-ERA activism and the engagement of the women's movement, the Supreme Court starts to interpret the 14th Amendment to prohibit sex discrimination. So that's not what the people who passed the amendment intended it to do. But the Supreme Court starts to say first in 1971, and then almost every year in the 1970s, the court decides a case saying discrimination on the basis of sex violates the Equal Protection Clause. And so there's an interesting scholarly debate now about whether we need the ERA. Because some people call this body of 14th Amendment case law the de facto ERA. It's not clear if we had an ERA passed today what it would actually do because the court has read the equal protection clause to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. The ERA would also prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. It's very interesting to think about whether that would add anything to what we already have. And I'll just I'll say one thing it might add is Uh, the protections for sex under the 14th Amendment are all embedded in the case law, so a new court could come along and could overturn all of those cases, and that could not happen if there was a constitutional amendment. Now, this body of 14th Amendment case law is almost 50 years old. It's very well entrenched. I do not foresee it being overturned in the near future, so it's interesting to think about what the ERA would actually do, practically.
1: Fascinating question. I'd love you to address Serena, tell us a little more about why the ERA did not pass. I remember a great book by Jane uh, Mansfield about why we lost the ERA and the claim is that when the Supreme Court, as Carrie suggests, intervened essentially to read the ERA into the Constitution by, uh, in, in the, in the Frontero, uh case, it took the wind out of the sails of ratification because people thought we don't have to pass this anymore. The Supreme Court has given us to this Uh, By by judicial fiat. Did the court err in stepping in that way? Would the amendment have passed if the court did not intervene? And then tell us about what sort of arguments that feminists made drawing on the civil rights movement uh, to persuade the court essentially to extend the reasoning that it embraced to protect women in the 70s and 80s.
0: Sure, so um, I think as far as the question of whether the 14th Amendment litigation success derailed the ERA. Um, I, you know, I think that certainly may have played a role. It's hard to do a counter... As a historian, I always have trouble doing counterfactuals of what would have happened had the court not done that. I think um, at least as significant was a very strong anti-ERA movement um, that uh, was really um, spearheaded by Phyllis Schlafly and, uh, and her... Um, she and her grassroots supporters uh, made arguments against the ERA that were not just about the fact that the Supreme Court was enacting, um, was, it was basically enacting the ERA through judicial fiat, although they did mention that, um, but also were really substantively about whether um, equal rights for women in the way that the ERA um, would have, uh, um, or, or at least they perceived the, the ERA, um, what they perceived the ERA to do, um, they, they made a very substantive case against uh, the amendment. Um, so I think that's, that's an important important factor.
1: Um, well, what was the substantive case? I guess.
0: Uh, well, so, I mean, some of the substantive case was um, based on what arguably was um, a misinterpretation of the ERA's impact. Uh, So, if we think that what the Supreme Court did in the 1970s is more or less what the ERA would have done had it passed, um, i.e., it eliminated sex-based classifications from most of federal and state law. So, for example, Social Security benefits that that husbands and not wives could receive or vice versa um, became gender neutral, Um, alimony laws became gender neutral. Opponents of the ERA argued that the ERA would, in fact, for example, eliminate husbands' duty to support their wives, um, would leave women bereft at divorce. They also argued that it would enshrine abortion rights into the Constitution and require federal funding of abortion. Um, by, the end, by the mid to late, actually even in the early 70s, anti-ERA, uh, opponents of the ERA argued that um, it would require same-sex marriage. Um, Feminists denied a lot of this. Uh, Many feminists denied that it would have any impact on abortion rights or on same-sex marriage. Um, They also denied um, uh, the notion that, uh, that husbands would have no duty to support their wives. Rather they said it simply made the duty of support, for example, gender neutral.
2: Can so I just um, interrupt? We should not underestimate the potty problem. There was a ton of discussion in the 1970s about how this would get rid of, say, sexed bathrooms, and we would all be going to the bathroom in the same uh, room, and uh, you know, endless editorial cartoons about, about that. That was a big part of the case.
0: Um, and, and, and that reminds me to also mention um, the, the military draft. It was a more substantive issue that people were concerned about, was that the ERA would require women as well as men to be drafted.
1: Um, uh, yeah. Now, I have to ask, were the opponents right in some sense? Carrie, you describe in this really fascinating article that Justice Ginsburg's vision of anti-subordination, which she certainly uh, encouraged the court to read into the Equal Protection Clause, but also would have thought that the ERA embraced as well, does in fact lead to reproductive rights to same-sex marriage. And I guess uh, some have invoked it today to argue for, same-sex bathroom. So were the opponents right to worry?
2: Um, Yes and no. Uh, I think some of the um, extremely radical claims about what would instantaneously happen uh, were were, um, not correct. And I think the opponents were forgetting that the court is an institution in a society. It doesn't tend to get too far out from where the culture is. And a lot of the things Serena mentioned were not things American culture was ready for in the 70s. I do not think an RA would, the, the RA would have somehow magically implemented all of those goals. However, in, a, in, in, in one way, in a deep sense, I think there was something to what the opponents were saying. Um, I'll just uh, uh, go on a little tangent, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back around to say that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the person who litigated most of the sex discrimination cases in the 1970s. She's the lawyer most responsible for uh, persuading the court to interpret the 14th Amendment to prohibit sex discrimination. And she brought her case, her sex discrimination cases, with male plaintiffs, right? To this day, most of the plaintiffs to reach the Supreme Court under the Constitution on Sex Discrimination Claims have been men, right? Most of our sex discrimination plaintiffs are men. And she decided that this was a good idea not because, uh, as some critics have uh, accused her of, just uh, she wanted to remove every distinction from the law and thought, I could, I could challenge it with a woman, I could challenge it with a man. Supreme Court's all men. Maybe they'll be more sympathetic to a man. Um, critics have said this left us with a kind of very formalistic sense of equality that didn't actually help women in a lot of circumstances, such as pregnancy, when formal equality wouldn't help them that much. I actually think why she brought all these cases with men is that she wanted to show the court that sex discrimination works both ways. Right? What sex discrimination is is a set of laws that push people into traditional gender roles. And this kind of behavior on the part of the state affects women and men equally. And she wanted the court to implement a constitutional principle that said, the state can't act in ways that push people into this breadwinner caregiver dichotomy or that push men to be, actors in the marketplace and women to stay home. Uh, And there was a whole set of laws that she challenged under this thinking and persuaded the court to, uh, I think, adopt this theory of when the Constitution is violated. Right. That's not saying that we have to treat men and women exactly the same in every circumstance. It's saying we're going to look at uh, each particular law and ask whether it does this um, traditionalist move, whether it pushes people in these directions. and uh, one of the reasons why I think some of this could lead to some of the kinds of current issues that you're talking about is the court in the 1970s didn't start applying this theory to same-sex marriage. That was way beyond the kind of thing that they were thinking then. However, if you think about the logic of uh, action by the state that pushes people into traditional gender roles, well, forcing people in- into traditionally sexed marriages is something that does that, right? The assumption is that a man has certain characteristics and traits and a woman has certain characteristics and traits and um, they make a couple together. They, they make a whole um, and each of them brings something different to that union, right? That's the kind of thinking that Ginsburg was attacking even though she wasn't attacking uh, sexed marriage laws at the time. Today, we could, we could say that that kind of philosophy, which the court has adopted, would apply to... Limiting marriage to different sex couples. And I am very interested to see this summer when the court, which I think it will do, uh, strikes down. I, 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 I say to my class every year, I'm not going to predict. And then I do predict, and I'm wrong every time. So I don't know why I keep doing this. I, I, I think it's likely that the Supreme Court will say that uh, laws limiting marriage to different sex couples are unconstitutional. I'm very curious to see whether there'll be any of this kind of reasoning in the opinion that. Um, again, predicting Justice Kennedy will author on the subject.
1: Well, let us um, uh, talk a bit more about Justice Ginsburg's vision. She is a great hero of the National Constitution Center. I'm thrilled that she gave us, when she was here last year, a signed copy of her brief in the Strzok case where Mm -hmm. she first set out the vision of anti-subordination that Carrie has just mentioned. And you can go go see it in the permanent exhibit uh, along with her robe. It's one of her most and our most prized possessions. Um, Serena, you have this really fascinating paper here about the possibilities and limits of Justice Ginsburg's, um, what you call the formal vision of gender egalitarian marriage, which she persuaded the court to write uh, into the Constitution. You say as a matter of formal law, it was good for married uh, couples, men and women, and it might even be extended to married uh, gay couples. But you say it has limits because it doesn't necessarily include unmarried couples, both gay and straight. Tell us more about the strengths and weaknesses of Justice Ginsburg's vision of legal equality.
0: Great, well I wanna be really clear. Actually, I completely agree with Carrie's um, wonderful and very persuasive article on this topic. I think what Justice Ginsburg and her allies and colleagues presented to the Supreme Court was a lot more than what they got in the end. Um, And and so I think it's important to distinguish between what it was she was arguing for and what the court actually did. when it comes to what the court actually did, um, I think the argument that the court had the easiest time accepting of all of the arguments that Justice Ginsburg made was that husbands and wives should not be treated differently as a matter of law for per- the purposes of things like social security benefits, um, for the purposes of um, marriage and divorce law and um, and to the extent that 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 they wrote formal equality into the law with respect to married couples. Um, that, of course, has its limits, even with respect to married couples. It didn't overnight make husbands and wives equal. It merely said that husbands and wives could not be treated differently by the government for the purposes of receiving these benefits. Um, that didn't mean that sort of, many of the structural um, inequalities that are both built into government policy and also that happen in As a matter of social reality in homes and workplaces, those of course didn't magically disappear. Um, But even even though, um, even this formal equality that was written into the law with respect to marriage and divorce to a large degree um, had its limits for uh, a growing portion of women, um, and particularly uh, women of less economic means and women of color, who during the same period that all of these gains were being made in making marriage more legally, at least formally gender egalitarian, um, marriage rates were falling, divorce rates were rising, Um, rates of non-marital childbearing were rising. And so a lot of the benefits that at least some um, married women Uh, in the wealthier professional classes gained from what the Supreme Court did in the 1970s was increasingly unavailable to large numbers of women on the basis of class and race. Um, And so it's not, I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as a limitation to what Justice Ginsburg um, argued for. There are many contexts in which what she argued for would have and did benefit um, women, whether they were married or not, and regardless of race and class, things like um, Her campaign against pregnancy discrimination um, and and a lot of uh, the litigation that she and her colleagues did um, uh, under Title VII. Of course, that has nothing to do with marriage and um, and furthers women's economic independence regardless of whether they have a partner. Um, But what we've seen recently is um, is really an increasing what sometimes people call a marriage gap. That marriage rates are much higher among um, wealthy uh, and upper-middle-class, uh, college-educated, uh, white Americans than they are among the rest of society. And that marriage gap wasn't... Um, wasn't It was starting to be apparent, but it wasn't really, I think, very apparent in the 1970s when this litigation was happening. So it's also important, I think, to remember that um, what they were uh, thinking about in the 70s was not necessarily what then came to pass.
1: Fascinating. Tell us more, Carrie, about why Justice Ginsburg thinks it's so important today to have an ERA. I had the... Huge pleasure of interviewing her in DC a few months ago uh, for The New Republic, and she said we need an ERA. She was critical of younger feminists for, no, for not pushing for it and realizing how important it is. Um, I, I mentioned to you that we, there's a great new book out about Justice Ginsburg's legacy that Carrie and others have contributed uh, to. Why does she think the ERA is so important? What would it achieve?
2: Yeah, I, um, she has said this before, I, last year, um, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg were both asked if you could have an amendment to the Constitution, what, how would you amend the Constitution? And Justice Ginsburg said, I would, um, I would uh, have an ERA. And Justice Scalia gave the answer that I would give, which is I would amend the Constitution to make the Constitution easier to amend, mm. right? I just, uh, our Constitution is extremely, extremely difficult to amend. And so one of the reasons we had the 14th Amendment interpreted to protect sex discrimination rather than an ERA is because Um, our amendment process is broken, I think. It was created by a set of people a couple hundred years ago who wanted the Constitution to be tough but not impossible to amend. There were many fewer states, there were many fewer people. It was not hard to amend the Constitution, right? The Constitution was amended immediately um, after it was passed. Today, uh, Justice Scalia calculated that less than 2% of the population could stop a constitutional amendment. Right? We don't see constitutional amendments these days. I think there have been about a dozen since 1870. Um, so it, it's very, very difficult to amend the Constitution. And I think the ERA, um, the prospects for the ERA are not very good, simply because it is very, very, very hard to amend the Constitution these days. Um, the kind of consensus that's required is the kind of consensus we just don't have. Um, so. Um, one, one limitation, I think, one, one reason that younger feminists may not be organizing around the ERA is just a realization that it is so hard to get this done. Uh, adding on to that, it's not clear, as I mentioned before, what it would do beyond what the 14th Amendment would do. Right? That, that's an interesting question. The 14th Amendment has been read to prohibit sex discrimination. The ERA would prohibit sex discrimination. I think if you ask Justice Ginsburg, uh, and in fact, I've seen interviews with her where she says, I want my granddaughters to open up the Constitution and see that there's a provision saying, uh, saying that discrimination on the basis of sex is unconstitutional. I think it's important to have that language in our founding document. As Jeff mentioned, the 14th Amendment inserted male. It was not intended to protect against sex discrimination. The kind of body of case law that she helped create could be rolled back. You know, 100 years from now, think society can change, and that can be eradicated with a couple of court decisions. If we amend the basic foundational document of the nation, it can't be removed other than through an amendment. Um, and it's impossible to amend the Constitution. So if we could possibly get the ERA in there, we wouldn't be able to get it out. Um, but you have to get through that first hurdle. Um, and uh, I, I am fascinated by the question of, of whether an ERA would be a helpful thing. My own view would be, practically speaking, it's not clear to me legally what it would do other than what we already have. Uh, The 14th Amendment does all the work that I think an ERA would do legally. I wouldn't underestimate, however, the cultural resonance of, and I think part of what's funding Ginsburg's idea is that to have an entire population mobilized around the idea of protecting women's equality would have a lot of spillover effects into all sorts of other areas, Um, and that's probably true.
1: Serena, how important is constitutional text and how important is the social movement that supports change? We have a phenomenal new interactive in the Bill of Rights Gallery, which you can use there and also online, where you can click on any provision of the Bill of Rights and subsequent amendments and compare that liberty with the rest of the globe. So you'll see if you click on gender discrimination that I think the majority of countries do have gender discrimination prohibitions but these include countries like Iran, which are hardly noted for their uh, celebration of of, of gender equality. So, Serena, you've studied the history of the movement, the way that feminists drew on the civil rights experience. Tell us what that experience did to actually achieve equality in practice, and whether that or the text is more important in achieving gender equality in practice.
0: Right, I mean, I guess I would say that it's really the interaction between the two that's significant. so uh, one, one thing I was thinking as Carrie was speaking, and I, I completely agree with what she said, um, is that part of what the ERA, for example, means is what, so, what the, is the meaning that social movements invest it with. Um, so there's a really interesting debate, uh, sort of little-known debate in the early 1980s, right after the ERA um, failed to be ratified. Um, it's a debate in Congress where um, lawmakers int- reintroduced the ERA uh, and um, it's fascinating to see what feminists were, were, were saying and thinking about the ERA just after it had failed to be ratified. Um, and one of the things that some of them were thinking uh, was that you know, they, they sort of sat back and thought, well, what, have we, what did we originally hope to, to do uh, with the ERA when it was proposed in the early 1970s? Um, and what they discovered was that most of that uh, had been achieved. Um, But that they still had a lot of unfinished business, um, both uh, unfinished business that they thought an ERA might help to remedy and unfinished business that they recognized needed to happen outside the ERA. And so um, one of the things that I think about when asked about prospects for um, a future amendment is, um, you know, to a large degree, it depends on uh, the efficacy of a new ERA would depend upon how it's interpreted and how it's interpreted often depends, as Carrie mentioned, upon the, so, the, the meaning that social movements invest it with and um, the, the type of advocacy that they do to change public opinion, to support new interpretations of existing text. Um, and so I think, uh, I think with respect to um, what, what's the unfinished business that feminists recognized in the early 80s uh, a lot of it is still unfinished business today. It's things like, um, it's things like uh, funding for abortion rights. Um, it's things like same-sex marriage, although we're much closer to that. Um, it's things like uh, legislation that enables people to better balance work and family, which some of which has been achieved um, in the form of the FMLA. But we're still we're talking about comparisons to other places, very far behind. Um, other developed countries and even even developing countries in the extent to which we don't provide um, family leave and other supports such as subsidized childcare um, and uh, and other supports for uh, families to balance uh, work and family and so I guess um, I guess my view would be that uh, not that the ERA is um, by any means um, providing needs to be a bad thing, but just that, as I think feminists were recognizing in the late 70s and early 80s, legislation, um, lobbying, uh, changing um, the culture of workplaces and um, and the culture of family life is also really important in, in uh, finishing some of that unfinished business.
1: Let me ask you about the work-family balance as well, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. When I interviewed Justice Ginsburg in the... Uh, late 90s, uh, she had in her office a picture of her son-in-law holding their infant, his infant grandchild, and that was so much fun. It was, a, it was an odd experience, because she didn't want to uh, sit down for a face-to-face interview, but she said, go to my chambers and look around as you please. So I was there in these beautiful chambers with this modern art, feeling a little awkward as I sort of looked at the bookcases and sort of hung out for about uh, a half hour admiring the pictures of her and Justice Scalia on an elephant in India, and her appearing in a production of the Pirates of Penzance and so forth, but she had this picture of her, uh, of her, of her uh, son-in-law, and she then called me from, from her car and said, did you see that picture? That's my hope for the future. And initially I thought that was a sort of banal, kind of my grandchildren and the hope for the future, but then I read her speeches and thought more deeply about it and realized she said only when men take equal responsibility for childcare will women be truly equal. This is a big debate among feminists today, among 3rd wave feminists. There are um, hotly contested arguments about what the solution to the workplace work-life balance is. Give us a sense of the legal debate and whether you think solutions to this most difficult of all questions are likely to come from the courts, from legislatures, or from social movements.
2: Um, So so one thing I would say, um, and it picks up on the previous question about the ERA is um, it seems to me potentially a more promising route for activism is through legislation rather than through an attempt to get a constitutional amendment simply because it is so, so difficult to uh, amend the Constitution. Now, it is so, so difficult to get things through Congress right now too, so I don't, um, I'm realizing as I'm talking that I'm I, holding that up as a panacea is, is hard right now. But um, There's, uh, everyone knows the first part of the 14th Amendment. It says the state can't deny people equal protection. People tend not to know about the fifth part of the 14th Amendment. The fifth provision of the 14th Amendment gives Congress the power to pass legislation that enforces the first part. So the fifth part of the Constitution says, Congress, you have the power to go pass laws to make equal protection a reality. So it seems to me that uh, a promising route for activists to take is to lobby Congress, to lobby legislatures, and to say we need laws that make this equal protection promise a reality. I think um, it is clearly the case that courts can only do so much, and legislatures in the day-to-day life of most people will make a much bigger difference. And so, uh, Serena mentioned the FMLA. Uh, this is one example of a piece of legislation that was enforcing the equal protection promise of the 14th Amendment. It said that employers have to provide 12 weeks of family leave to men and to women. Um, And the court agreed that that was a law that enforced equal protection. Because without leave, uh, employers didn't let men take leave. They pushed women to take leave. And they continued this cycle of family stereotyping. and And Congress said, We're going to guarantee 12 of leave to everyone to stop that kind of discrimination. It seems to me that to attack the work-family problem, you're going to need a lot more of this kind of legislation. So if I were an activist interested in these issues, I would probably advocate for paid leave, right? We only have, I think it's three states, California, Rhode Island, New Jersey, the only states where there's any paid leave at all. So the FMLA leave, 12 weeks of unpaid leave, that's wonderful. But if you're a low-income person, you can't afford 12 weeks of leave. So that's a, that's a, that's a um, chimerical promise to you. It's not going to really bring you much. Paid leave would be pretty important to enable people to actually take this leave. Um, sick leave is important. There are a lot of people who lose their jobs who are working, um, say, at McDonald's. If you have a sick child, it's easier for McDonald's just to fire you. Uh, and hire someone else, if, and they provide you with no sick leave, uh, you're going to lose your job if your child is sick. This is a reality for a lot of people. These are the kinds of uh, legislation that I think I would push for if I were interested in getting that Equal Protection Clause implemented. It's hard. It's slow going, though. It's slow going. It's not, as, as Serena mentioned, America is very far uh, behind. If you, if you support this kind of legislation, you'd say very far behind in implementing all of these kinds of safety nets for uh, working families, and um, and uh, I think, however, um, that if you wanted to attack the work-family balance, the ERA would not be the way to go. It would be lobbying legislatures to implement these kind of uh, protections.
1: Great, we have some superb questions from our wonderfully engaged audience, and let's get right to them. Uh, Serena, the Pennsylvania Constitution protects explicitly against gender discrimination. Has that made any difference for Pennsylvania citizens compared to U.S. citizens?
0: Um, that's a great question, and one that I could have answered um, in a more informed way a few years ago when I was working on these issues, and I, um, I, uh, so I don't remember specifically the Pennsylvania ERA and the specific court decisions that would be relevant to a truly informed answer on this question. I can say generally, though, that um, state ERAs have made a difference in certain areas in certain states, um, and different state ERAs actually have different language. Um, some of them are very similar to what the federal ERA would have been. Some of them are quite different. Um, Some of them incorporate sex into a larger state equal protection clause. Um, One of the ways in which state ERAs have been significant is in the area of abortion funding. Um, So for example, Connecticut has a state ERA uh, and the the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled, um, I think back in the 1980s, that that the state ERA required Medicaid funding for abortions. Um, So that's been one significant way in which it's made a difference. I think it's also made some differences in um, some areas of family law, um, and you know there are differences that uh, um, I, I would I would not characterize as dramatic differences. Um, the state ERAs have been have been invoked um, in marriage equality cases uh, to some degree. Um, they've been invoked um, in some other contexts including um, things like inheritance laws um, that differentiate on the basis of sex. So I would say they they certainly have not been insignificant, um, but they haven't made uh, such a huge impact beyond what um, the litigation under the Federal
1: Equal Protection Clause has provided. Fascinating, Um, interesting indeed. Uh, This uh, question, Carrie, says we just passed the first state ERA in 30 years in Oregon. First, isn't it true that some want to hold up the ERA so that it includes gay people and transgender people. And second, the ERA has, uh, and a case name is listed, nara versus Johnson, uh, uh, has held that uh, I think reproductive rights are protected. So I think the question is about this Oregon ERA, might it be extended to transgender people and reproductive rights?
2: Um, well, it's certainly the case that um, that discrimination on the basis of sex is starting to be interpreted by some courts to protect. Prohibitions on discrimination on the basis of sex have started to be interpreted by some courts as protecting against discrimination on the basis of homosexuality, discrimination on the basis of uh, transgender. There was a famous case a few years ago um, where a person applied to work uh, as a libra- at the Library of Congress. and um, he was a man when he applied, he got the job, and then when he showed up at work, he was a woman. He had transitioned in the period between he got the job and he showed up. And the Library of Congress said, you're fired. Um, I think it was actually, they'd be working with um, some collections, maybe even military collections, that the members of Congress would be uh, requesting in the library. And the library said, "You know, we can't have you being our liaison to Congress, no way. Uh, and so he, she, went to court and won because the D.C. court said this is discrimination on the basis of sex, right? You hired this man and now you don't want this woman and every single thing is the same except for the person's sex. Uh, That's not the only decision in which a court has held that. There have also been some courts saying that discrimination on the basis of sexuality, uh, particularly against homosexual people, is discrimination on the basis of sex because what you don't like about that person is that they're attracted to men instead of women? It's the sex difference there that you don't like, um, and so I think some opposition to sex discrimination provisions is definitely uh, is definitely on this basis. the um, the most um, the most important one is probably, and I wonder if the person was also thinking about this. So I'll just say one word about it, which is the um, There has been an effort, a very strong effort, to amend Title VII to prohibit discrimination on the basis of homosexuality. Our main employment discrimination law in this country is Title VII. It says employers can't discriminate on the basis of race, on the basis of sex. It does not protect against discrimination on the basis of sexuality. So under federal law, if an employer says, I don't like you, you're gay, you're fired, that's acceptable. Right? So there's been an attempt to amend Title VII to include homosexuality. And one of the big arguments against it is, you know, is this going to protect transgender people? Is this going to protect um, things that we're not comfortable protecting yet? And that definitely has hold, held up the addition of the amendment to uh, Title VII. So yes, I think, this, these, think these ways of thinking, this, these extensions of protections against discrimination on the basis of sex that Jeff uh, flagged Um, the opponents in the 1970s were arguing, they're coming into play now, um, and they are uh, a hurdle that advocates of the laws need to overcome.
1: Uh, Serena, does the ERA have to start over again, or do we just need three states? Was the sunset provision constitutional?
0: Uh, I have to admit that's not a question that I'm prepared to answer. I don't know, Carrie, if you have any insight on that.
2: Uh, well, uh, yeah, I don't, um, but I don't, that won't stop me. <laughs> um, um, so, you law professor. <laughs> yes, yes, I am a law professor, right? Yes. Um, um, so, so there's an argument that uh, the ERA actually managed to get 35 states, uh, and it needed 38 states to pass by 1982. It, it, it fell short. It fell three states short. Uh, and there was a, there's an argument that uh, we those 35 states that passed the ERA in the 1970s should still count as having passed it. And so we should only need to get the other remaining three. And then once we get to 38, it should pass immediately. Um, there's others who say, no, those, 38, those 35 states don't count. In fact, I think some of the states have rescinded their passages of the ERA. It's a technical procedure kind of question that's not in the wheelhouse of either me or Serena. But... Um, Yes, there was a debate among legal scholars about whether those 35 states that passed it in the 70s should count if, if the ERA were to come up today.
1: Um, how can you appeal to men to join in the ERA fight?
0: Um, so I think one of the geniuses of Justice Ginsburg's strategy and um, of, many of the 1970s feminists was their recognition that sex discrimination harms men as well as women. Um, and I think to the extent that we think that men need to feel a personal stake in feminism in order to support it, um, that, uh, that appealing to um, the ways in which it, it harms, the ways in which sex inequality and sex stereotyping um, harm men as well is, is very effective. And so I think one of the, um, perhaps incidental benefits of, um, of Ginsburg's strategy in the 1970s was in bringing to the forefront the fact that um, sex discrimination and sex inequality and sex stereotyping keep men from um, uh, actually restrict the freedom of men as well as women, restrict their freedom to care for their families and work, um, restrict their freedom to um, really have true reproductive choice in their, um, in their own families. Um, uh, restrict their their uh, ability to um, be, if they want to, full-time uh, parents to their children and still um, maintain um, their position in the workforce. And, uh, and so I think, and that's also one of the geniuses of the Family and Medical Leave Act. As Carrie said, it applies to men and women, and that is, in fact, part of what, um, what feminists and other advocates were thinking when they made it gender-neutral was to say... Um, in order for our society to become friendlier to women and to people who provide care for others, which tend to be women, but in order for it to not only be women anymore, we need to allow men to do these things as well, um, that, that's, uh, that that kind of gender-neutral strategy um, is one that, to me, seems really uh, promising as a means of uh, helping men to understand what their stake in, is in feminism and feminist activism.
1: You, do, you, do you want to add to that, Carrie, because you say that the court, in upholding the Family and Medical Leave Act in the Hibbs case, did embrace a broader vision of anti-subordination that might uh, be a rebuke to those who said that Justice Ginsburg was merely uh, you know, embracing a gender blind vision that wanted women to be like men.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in what the Supreme Court has said in terms of men's stake in sex equality, I highly recommend the uh, de- Department of, Nevada Department of Transportation, B. Hibb's case. Uh, it is excessively written and very interesting. Um, and the, the most interesting part about this decision uh, is that it was written by Justice Rehnquist and it's as if you were a ventriloquist speaking Justice Ginsburg because the entire opinion is her theories about sex stereotyping. And what that opinion says is um, in fact, the plaintiff in that case was a man, and he was denied. Uh, well, he, he, um, he wanted to take family leave, and the question was whether Congress had the power to uh, give him that family leave. And the court said that um, there is a cycle of stereotyping in this country, and it feeds on itself. So um, it hurts women when men cannot get parental leave because they therefore have to take all of that burden on themselves, um, and employers treat them differently, uh, and um, don't give them plum assignments, and don't promote them because the expectation is when they have children, they're going to leave the workplace or scale back. And the court said it hurts men because they are expected to work hard once they have kids. They are going to be supporting their family. They're not going to be given any time off at all. Um, and they're going to be put in the same, well, they're going to put in a different box, but both sexes are going to be put in boxes and limit what, uh, what they're able to do. And Chief Justice Rehnquist says that's not permissible um, as uh, behavior for the state to engage in. Or Anyway, Congress can attack that kind of thing because it's hurting, uh, it's hurting both sexes. And um, just as a side note, this is something that uh, Linda Greenhouse, the former court reporter for The New York Times, always brings up. Uh, Justice Rehnquist had a daughter who was a single mother. He had a couple of grandchildren that he was, in the time he wrote this opinion, constantly picking up from school because she was working. She couldn't get out to pick them up. He had to pick up the family slack, and a light bulb went off in his head. Gee, this is hard, you know? And families need, um, families need some support. And um, I think that that, I think Justice Ginsburg informed him uh, intellectually, and I think his own experience informed that opinion
1: uh, personally. Fascinating story, she was so fond of uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist who she always called my chief and that opinion that you mentioned the Hibbs case was for her the crowning evolution of a justice who um, uh, had voted against her in some of the gender equality cases in the 1970s but she felt evolved. I think we have time for one last uh, question. Um, Would having more women in Congress help uh, protect women's rights and the passage of a women's rights amendment, how can that be achieved? And more broadly, what is there a gender, w- what are the gender numbers when it comes to the ERA? I know some uh, conservative, uh, some polls suggested that uh, women supported the protective legislation uh, that was upheld in the partial birth abortion case at a higher rate than men. So I guess my question, I'm extending the question to ask, do, do all women favor the ERA or is there a, you know, Gender gap there.
0: Great. So um, the first part of the question about um, more women in Congress, I mean, I guess my answer would be um, it depends on the women. And I would say in order, to achieve, in order to achieve these goals, more feminists in Congress would be helpful. And, um, and I think certainly um, the, um, uh, the record of women in Congress thus far um, has suggested that at least the women who have served in Congress have been somewhat more able to work together, perhaps, um, on some of these issues. Um, and so, regardless of their um, partisan affiliation or their orientation toward feminism, it might be useful to have more women in Congress for that reason. Um, and the second part of the question was sorry,
1: you uh, w- what are the poll numbers about women oh, I'm in sorry. The ERA? E- ERA support?
0: Um, so, I don't know the exact poll numbers, um, but it is definitely true that a lot of the opposition to the ERA, as well as a lot of the support for the ERA, was coming from, from women who were worried about its effects, um, who were um, conservative on other dimensions, who were often um, religious and had religious objections to the feminist movement uh, more generally. Uh, and I think um, that electoral demographics have undoubtedly shifted since the time that the ERA was a really a big issue. But I think... Um, not being a political demographer myself, I I think it's fair to say that there continues to be a divide among uh, women. There also um, is, as there was beginning um, uh, in the early 80s, um, uh, a very, of course, substantial electoral gender gap between men and women. um, But when you break that down into different groups of women, it becomes clear that gender is not the only factor that's driving that gap.
1: Fascinating. Thank you. And please join me in thanking Terry Franklin and Serena Mayeri. Thanks for a great discussion. This episode was produced by
0: me, Jackie McDermott, along with Taneya Tauber and Lana Ulrich. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.